Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Um, hope you all had a nice Christmas and New Year. Uh, I, you know, I can't complain really. I'm a vegetarian, but I figured that me and the missus had earned a turkey after the last year. So we roasted us a bird with all the trimmings. Um, the turkey was free range though, so don't worry, it lived a long and happy life. I will give you the recipe sometime. I might put it on the, the Patreon, behind a paywall, of course. So yeah, we've we've taken the Christmas decorations down in the bunker, and now the walls are once again covered in pictures of Clyde Tolson and William Taft. Not because I'm researching them, but just because I like having them on the wall, watching over me. So friends, it's 2021, and that means we're back. And the brakes on the ghost train have been cut. I cut them. And it's time to careen recklessly through another interwar decade of intrigue and mayhem. And remember that you can hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com or sub and show some love over on Patreon. So last episode, we looked at how the mafia carved out a space for itself in the competitive underworld of the US and how prohibition supercharged the evolution of organized crime in America and connected gangsters from all different backgrounds to the upper echelons of American capital. And we looked at Luki Luciano and Maya Lansky's partnership and we explored the relationships that Lansky established with businessmen in the straight world, like, you know, Sam Bronfman and Louis Rosenstiel. We also touched on Joe Kennedy and his possible links to organized crime. And then we looked at how Al Capone's political machine operated in contrast to the, the more subtle and refined methods of Luciano and Lansky. And with that covered, we can now have a look at the period roughly spanning 1930 to 1940. So this is part two of American Tabloid, and it's called Yankees and Cowboys. And I took the title from a political writer called Carl Oglesby, who he theorizes that much of 20th century American history, at least up to the mid-70s, you know, uh, with Watergate and the hearings into the CIA's conduct, both overseas and at home, well, he says that a lot of it only makes sense if you view it as a continual struggle between two factions of the power elite, factions that remain in place no matter which party is actually governing. So the Yankees, naturally, they're based primarily in the north and east of the US with deep ties to Wall Street and a kind of traditional affinity for London and the European continent. According to Oglesby and other people who cleave towards this theory. This partly motivated their desire to have America intervene in the two world wars. 
the other faction, the Cowboys, um, well, the theory says that obviously they operate out of the South and West and the theory has it that they, uh, they tend more towards the figure of the pioneer, or at least that's how they see themselves. Uh, they see themselves as frontiersmen taming new and uncharted territory. Uh, and their interests tend to lay in big oil and in US adventurism in South America and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. So it's an interesting theory, and I'd say there is something to it, but only at particular historical moments with particular figures. Uh, what I think you'll see in this episode is that more often than not, the interests of both factions, assuming they exist, if we grant that they actually exist, well, these interests converge as much as they conflict. And again, if, if you buy... Um, the theory, which I'm somewhat agnostic about. Well, even within each camp, there are groups and networks that conspire against each other. And then you have Yankees who act more like cowboys and cowboys who act more like Yankees. But I feel like it provides a nice framing device anyway for this episode. And we can kind of test the theory as we cover different episodes from the 1930s to help us explore what we can think of as the embryonic American deep state. So we'll be looking at different rivalries and factions, business interests and, and key players. But first, we're going to briefly loop back to the 20s and begin by looking at J. Edgar Hoover and his rise to power. Hoover, to one degree, or another will be lurking in the shadows throughout the next 30 years of secret history that our American tabloid series will be covering. So there's no better time to get the measure of him than here. And then throughout this episode, we're going to be hopping here, there and everywhere as we move closer to the start of World War II. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Fire up that blunt, fill that vape, crack open a beer, whatever floats your boat. And let's begin. So J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with subversion, with rooting out political subversives and cracking down hard on anything that might threaten the US WASP elite, which he viewed himself as a guardian of. Uh, he was born in the Capitol Hill district of Washington, DC, and he lived his entire life in the city. And during World War I, he worked in the War Emergency Division at the Justice Department, and then the Alien Enemy Bureau, hunting spies and saboteurs. The job also handily exempted him from the draft and he demonstrated a natural talent for intelligence gathering and backroom politics. And he also happily threw himself into the first Red Scare and relished the power he'd been given to designate whoever he liked a radical or a threat to the American way of life. In late 1919 and into early 1920, Alexander Mitchell Palmer, the, the US Attorney General at the time, uh, he signed off on what became known as the Palmer Raids after a wave of bombings by Italian anarchists called uh, Gallianists, so named because they were followers of the anarchist activist Luigi Galliani. Palmer 
had by that point made Hoover the head of the General Intelligence Division at the Bureau of Investigation, and Hoover carried out his orders to a T. The Bureau mostly targeted Italian and Eastern European Jewish immigrants and known socialist and trade union organizers, and they wound up arresting about 3,000 people. So you might remember that way back in the Italy period of this show, we talked about 19th century criminologists. And if I recall correctly here, we talked about how a lot of them veered into something like race science. And they believed that, um, say, a hair lip or a big forehead meant, you know, a person was predisposed towards a given type of crime. Now, Hoover wasn't quite this backward looking, but you will see echoes of this stuff in much of his approach, particularly when it came to black Americans and other minorities. And although he advocated a highly scientific approach to investigating crime, and in a way he was responsible for some pretty big innovations in his time, he was also very much a child of the 19th century, and he was a product of the American elite. So for him, criminals weren't particularly smart or capable people. At best, they had a kind of dumb cunning. And crime wasn't caused by social or economic problems so much as it was caused by the criminal's own innate moral failings. So to Hoover, crime wasn't a bad thing because an honest person might get cheated or somebody might get hurt or killed. Crime was bad because it was subversive. It threatened the social order. And if you had politics or personal habits outside his own a highly specific view of what was acceptable, of what, you know, reified the American social order. You were therefore a criminal, and he really did view it that simply. So, inevitably, trade unionists and socialists and civil rights leaders, they were every bit as dangerous to Hoover and his G-men as bootleggers or rapists or hitmen. Now, after the Palmer Raids, sometime in 1920, um, Hoover also became a Freemason, which, again, opened up a whole new area of connections and opportunities for him. And I include this here only because I've thought about this little tidbit quite a lot, and I've come to the conclusion that a lot of the time, when people like J. Edgar Hoover joined the Freemasons, in addition to you know the money and the power that it unlocks for them, it also, I think, I swear to God, it's also because it makes you sound like a complete dickhead when you say, gee, it's kind of weird that the head of the FBI was a Freemason, isn't it? I'm sure that that partly motivates why they join. So in 1924, Hoover became the head of the Bureau of Investigation and his idiosyncratic style of management started to reveal itself more and more. Uh, he purged the Bureau of anyone he suspected of corruption or being the beneficiaries of nepotism, which, you know, fair enough. But he also tended to harbor these insane grudges and obsess over incredibly minor transgressions. So agents could find themselves transferred to dead-end desk jobs for life for chewing their food too loudly in the lunchroom or arriving for a shift seconds late or inserting a paragraph break at the wrong point in an internal memo. And it's this level of micromanagement that, ex that inspired as much devotion as it did resentment. 
and Hoover seems to have absolutely relished both equally. And he was also someone who was very quick to jealousy and who fiercely protected what he thought of as his position as the number one law enforcer in the country. So Elliot Ness, who he became famous as the untouchable prohibition agent and was widely tipped to be a high profile addition to Hoover's Bureau of Investigation. Um, well, Hoover was very wary of being overshadowed. So he seized on rumors of low level corruption and late night alcohol consumption to shut Ness out. And somewhat ironically, Hoover found some of this information out from Melvin Purvis. Now Purvis would make a name for himself chasing depression era bank robbers in the thirties. But at this point, he was just, he's basically another career bureau man who was desperate to get back in Hoover's good books after blowing a raid on a Chicago distillery. And I say it's ironic because Hoover would also fuck Purvis over in the thirties for the same reasons that he did Ness, you know, this uh, uh, personal petty jealousy. This being the Prohibition era, while Hoover acknowledged that racketeers and criminal gangs controlled the liquor trade and had corrupted local law enforcement and politics in cities across America, uh, he still refused to countenance the idea of an organized nationwide criminal underworld, you know, the mafia. So a lot of this you can put down to his Puritan morality and his view of the criminal mind, because to him, Networking and politicking was done by men of the world in gentlemen's clubs and boardrooms because they were the only kinds of people who could do that. And to his way of thinking, this new generation of hoods rising to power during Prohibition, most of them, you know, ill-educated and from impoverished backgrounds in the slums of American cities, well, they simply to Hoover didn't have the intelligence or the temperament to organize themselves and operate like any other American capitalist endeavor. There is no such thing as organized crime or the mafia became like his mantra. And whether he really genuinely believed this, even in 1924, is something that we're going to look at in more detail a little bit later. But all I'll say for now is that there are now reasons to suspect that he probably knew at least as early as the 1920s that it was bullshit, that there was a mafia, that there was such thing as a, an organized nationwide um, un criminal underworld. Although he publicly forswore politics and claimed that the Bureau was an impartial instrument of the law, I think it's safe to conclude just from what we've talked about so far that he had a viciously conservative, hard right view of the world. And he privately admitted to friends that, you know, shockingly, he was a lifelong Republican and he reveled in going after Reds and communists most of all. Uh, he handpicked almost every Bureau man in the early going, selecting for lads of good pedigree who shared his worldview. And one of his key guys was a man named George Rush, who was known to say stuff like, it is astonishing that left-wingers should be allowed to speak and write as they like. Right from the get-go, Hoover was keen on compiling dirt files on people that he considered subversive and people that, you know, he straight up didn't like. So he opened a file on Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, and he kept it open for the better part of 50 years, telling his agents that he considered Frankfurter the most dangerous man in the United States. 
Uh, he spied on left wingers. He spied on civil liberties lawyers. He spied on politicians he didn't trust or who he believed were, uh, as he put it, suspiciously left wing. Um, he strove to paint a picture of himself in the public imagination as the last honourable man fighting the moral turpitude and anarchist agitation of the age. And he worked closely with sympathetic journalists to blame left-wing political activists as the cause of everything from rising crime to what he called changing sexual standards. What Hoover was after, when you break it right down, was exactly the same thing as his contemporary, Alan Dulles. Hoover wanted control, both for himself and his class. And to achieve this, he toyed with the idea of running for president, but he, he lacked you know, the charisma and really the support. But what he also really wanted was to build a domestic intelligence service that was accountable only to him. And in a really strange way, the crash of 29 gave him exactly what he wanted. So the 1932 general election was a blowout. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt only lost six states and uh, inherited an economy in ruins and a depression that had left almost a quarter of the population unemployed. So he set to work using the federal government to steady the ship. And of course, he implemented what they call the New Deal. And we do not have the space to get into all the ins and outs of the New Deal, but uh, my impression from everything I've read is that it was basically a last gasp attempt to save capitalism from itself, which is probably not the most original insight, but whatever, you know, it feels right. Tell me if I'm wrong. But what it also presented FDR with during a decade where fascism was emerging onto the world stage and communist and socialist organizing was reaching more and more people in the capitalist West was it was an opportunity to change the dynamic of the American economic system and to empower the, the working class at the expense of the robber barons and Wall Street. Now, understandably, it was extremely satisfying to a lot of regular people who were on their knees to see a man of FDR's background apparently betraying his class with his seemingly sweeping economic and social reforms and that he seemed to enjoy committing this betrayal also fueled his appeal, you know, with lines like, I welcome their hatred, you know, said in, re in reference to America's economic elite, the elite that tanked the economy and sank the world. And obviously this endeared him to millions of people. But of course, the business elite in the States weren't quite as taken with their new president. And in the episode about Alan Dulles, we talked about how <clears throat> in the interwar period, America's financial and political class served as a kind of informal foreign intelligence network, you know, a network of graduates and uh, good old boys from Ivy League universities who collected gossip and information as they traveled the world. And this embryonic deep state knew it had fucked up big time 
after the crash of 29. For a couple of years, it was scrambling to rebuild. All of this is relative, of course. And they were quite thrilled with Hitler and Mussolini, and they admired the way that they'd clamped down on labor organizing after the, the depression started, um, while building a, a very profitable marriage between the state and the corporations. And roughly speaking, this American proto-deep state, I'm using air quotes here, split into two factions for a short while in the 1930s. One side was content, at least for the time being, to adopt a wait-and-see approach to the FDR presidency. The other was violently opposed, murderously opposed to giving up even a handful of their loot. And it didn't matter that FDR's project ultimately was all about stabilizing capitalism for the long term. The perception, the perception had developed on the more reactionary side of the ruling class that Roosevelt was really trying to smuggle in communism under the guise of the New Deal. And this latter faction got together and they talked through what their options were. In 1934, a man named Smedley Darlington Butler, who was a retired Marine Corps general, contacted the FBI with a pretty incredible story. Butler claimed that he'd been approached by a certain Gerald Maguire, a World War I veteran and a Wall Street bond salesman, and Maguire had an offer. Maguire told Butler that a group of concerned citizens with close connections to the American Legion could offer 500,000 men and all the guns and ammo that Butler could want if he'd agree to lead an organized overthrow of the Roosevelt administration. And in its place would be installed a kind of corporate junta made up of executives from some of the biggest companies in the country, protected by a standing army composed of disaffected veterans of World War I. Does that sound familiar? So Butler played along with the plot for a time, you know, and he says that he was introduced to some pretty heavy hitters, including executives from J.P. Morgan and DuPont. All of these guys were pissed at FDR's New Deal policies, again, believing that they were the start of a slide to communism, and they were determined to stamp out the American working class's growing confidence and solidarity. And DuPont, incidentally, had already financed the creation of a white supremacist vigilante gang called the Black Legion to smash union organizing amongst the predominantly black workers at its Midwestern General Motors factories. Uh, the Legion wore black robes decorated with white skull and crossbones. They rode horses into black communities late at night to terrorize the workers. And they were notorious for firebombing union activist homes and kidnapping and torturing them and even murdering them. At its peak, they claimed 200,000 members. And one guy they murdered during this period was a reverend called Earl Little, who was a community and civil rights organizer. And they killed him in 1931. His son would grow up to be Malcolm X. But anyway, back, back to the coup. Another guy who Butler says he was introduced to was a Robert Sterling Clark, who was the heir to the Singer Corporation and a former lieutenant in the Boxer Rebellion. And at one time or another, other people have been connected to what's now known as the business plot. And given their extremely close personal and professional connections at J.P. Morgan from their work for the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, 
the Dulles brothers sometimes crop up as being connected. And another guy who we're going to talk about in a little bit, Prescott Bush. Maguire explained to Butler that his backers had paid as much as $25,000 for him to travel to Germany and Italy to scope out these newfangled Nazi and fascist regimes over there and take notes on how they'd used veterans of World War I as shock troops in street fights and how they dealt with enemies to their left. Butler's story was... It was verified in a roundabout way by a Peter Green, who was an executive at Six Companies Incorporated, which claimed to have helped build the Hoover Dam. Uh, he said that he was approached in 1933 by two members of the National Veterans Association, and he was informed that there were regional leaders of different militias all over the country who were planning a right-wing uprising against the government. Green was approached because he was the leader of the Boulder City American Legion Post, and they figured that he'd be receptive to leading the Nevada wing of the operation. Now, for his part, FDR actually seems to have been energized when he was told about the plot. And why not, really, when you think about it? Because it was incredible publicity. So now he's not just a traitor to his class, uh, standing against the pigs on Wall Street on behalf of the little man. But he is now so feared by the pigs that they are willing to finance a fascist overthrow of his government. And how far along the plans actually were is, of course, totally open question. Um, and nowadays you'll find journalists who do talk about the business plot are pretty loath to admit that America ever had a fascist problem that extended that far into the world of big business, especially given, you know, the current mission is painting Donald Trump as an aberration in American political history. But for me, it's pretty significant and suspicious that the McCormack-Dickstein Committee, the very first House on American Activities deal, specifically created to root out Nazi and fascist collaborators and subversion in US business and politics, well, they adamantly refused to call any of the people that um, Butler had accused to testify, flat out refused. And they also declined to investigate much of what the general told them, even though they freely admitted that there was plenty of merit to what he was saying and that it did, in fact, bear further scrutiny. And when you contrast that with how HUAC conducted itself during the second Red Scare, that's a pretty stark difference. And on top of that was J. Edgar Hoover's own rush to bury what Butler had reported and find any way he could to avoid looking into the information that he'd been given. And he even wrote to Green and Butler personally and told them that he couldn't do anything unless the Wall Street plotters actually activated the coup and started the uprising. Here, I think it's pretty obvious that the thinking on Hoover's part is that he can work with a fascist government, but he has no reason at all to involve the Bureau in something that could alienate him from the business class and the politicians they earned. So while the threat from the right wasn't all that concerning, at least to FDR, there was somebody coming up on his left or maybe this was also his right, actually. It's, it's tough to tell with this guy. But anyway, 
FDR was growing increasingly wary of this guy as the 30s rolled on. And I'm talking about Huey Long, the, the kingfish. Now, Huey was the firebrand governor of Louisiana. Uh, he went from high school dropout to lawyer to populist politician who openly criticized Roosevelt's New Deal as too conservative and soft on big business. And he was elected off the back of his promise of a massive wealth redistribution program in Louisiana. And his campaign slogan was every man a king. And he seems to have genuinely felt for the poor and, and the working class. And he managed to get elected in a state like Louisiana. And this is something that is always touted about him. Uh, he managed to get elected in Louisiana without race baiting, focusing instead on economics and, and class. But he also, to be fair, refused to back anti-lynching laws, you know. And his friends and colleagues uh, said in the years following that he'd have been as apt to support civil rights as he would have been to just throw black Americans under the wheels, depending on what would have brought him more personal power. However... Long did introduce huge reforms in his state that lifted all poor people um, up. He funded new schools and textbooks for kids, night schools and literacy programs for adults, built about 3,000 miles of new roads to improve the state's infrastructure. And he paid for all of it by rinsing Louisiana's oil companies, particularly Standard Oil, which he'd nursed a lifelong hatred of ever since they fucked him on a pipeline deal back in 1918. And he also went after the wider Southern aristocracy in Louisiana. And as with the oil companies, he hit them with hefty tax raises and business fees to fund his reforms. In a lot of respects, Huey was the archetypal machine boss, but he was also part gangster, part revolutionary and part dictator. Uh, he made all his staff sign their own resignation letters on their first day in the job so that he could fire them at a moment's notice if they pissed him off in some way. He took a piece of everything that his personal appointees made and he creamed off tens of thousands of dollars in kickbacks and bribes and stashed it all in what he called his war chest. And he insisted that he be referred to as the kingfish. And when anybody protested about his way of doing business and politics, he'd send around his goon squad to scare the shit out of them, basically. Or he'd leverage fines for their impudence or he'd whip up a public outcry to make their positions untenable using um, the journalists that he controlled in the state. And even after he won the election to the Senate in 1931, he remained in place as governor and prevented his successor from entering the, the governor's mansion. And when the successor demanded that he be allowed to take his place, Huey ordered the National Guard to surround the governor's mansion and accused uh, his successor of trying to stage a coup d'etat. So needless to say, there was a quite serious concern that if Huey Long ever reached the White House, the states would transform into a dictatorship almost overnight. So as a senator, he was initially a massive FDR supporter. Uh, he helped unite delegates from the South in nominating FDR for the presidential run. And again, we don't have enough time to get into all the ins and outs of what he got up to, but 
I recommend you read up on it if you're not familiar because it is a trip. Um, but basically, Huey alienated almost all his colleagues, even as his popularity with the voters soared. And by 1933, Roosevelt was openly calling him one of the most dangerous men in America. There were a lot of guys being called the most dangerous man in America in the 1930s. It, it seems to have been a national pastime. So all the graft and the insubordination and the hucksterism, that might have been forgiven, but for one thing, which is that Huey spoke out against the firm. He published a book called My First Days in the White House, which was, was a bit of speculative fiction explaining how he would win the 36 election and what cabinet positions he might deign to give FDR if FDR was sufficiently contrite. Uh, Long was also openly accusing Roosevelt of being a shill for big business and selling out labor by this point. And crucially, he was also making speeches against the firm when it came to matters of foreign policy. He proposed that the Philippines be granted independence from the US. And he said that US foreign policy was shaped at the behest of Wall Street. And he described how Standard Oil corrupted foreign governments in places like Bolivia and even went so far as to say that America only became involved in World War I and the Spanish-American War because the American business class, you know, uh, Big Oil and Wall Street, had insisted on it. Now, even if all this was ego-stroking and score-settling, he was still drawing attention to things that the establishment would prefer remain out of the spotlight. And Long was famous enough at this point that a fascinated H.G. Wells actually traveled from Britain just to interview him. Back in uh, Louisiana, Standard Oil and the Southern elites were steaming over Long's total control of the state by this point. And I find it quite telling that most of the anti-Long faction invoked memories of the Battle of Liberty Place to keep these insurrectionary fires stoked. And as we'll remember from part one of American Tabloid, the Battle of Liberty Place was a white supremacist uprising against the Reconstruction Era government. Long, uh, in response, imposed a 5% tax on every barrel of oil that Standard produced, leading executives to form the Square Deal Association, which was basically a militia operating on behalf of Standard. And they seized the Baton Rouge courthouse, which led to a standoff with the National Guard. And then they engaged in a firefight at Baton Rouge Airport. Now, nobody was seriously injured, but it was pretty clear indication of where things were heading. And after Long passed a bill that effectively gerrymandered one of the good old boys and a member of the anti-Long faction, a guy called Judge Benjamin Henry Pavey, his son-in-law, uh, Carl Weiss, ambushed Huey and shot him. Now, Weiss was taken out within seconds by Long's security detail, but yeah, it was curtains for the kingfish. Uh, he managed to grab a taxi to the hospital and then he died while the doctors were trying to stop his internal bleeding. So Huey Long, kind of hard to get a read on this guy, I have to say, but I truly don't think that he would have reached the White House even if he'd survived the shooting. Uh, I think there would have been something else at some point because even if he was full of shit, he'd still created the perception amongst the people who really run America that he actually was 
a threat to their interests. And what's striking about Huey Long's story is the unity of opposition towards him. The Cowboys and the Yankees alike were appalled that an outsider was thumbing his nose at the oligarchy. And then when I read over accounts of the assassination itself, I can't help but feel the hand of the uncanny on my shoulder here, friends. Um, another point in favour of Haunted America being a literal truth, as well as the name of this series. Uh, because if we check the particulars, we have a politician who may have been all bluff and bluster, but whose personal myth-making had created at least the perception that he was a legitimate threat to certain powerful entities. Entities that straddle the line between big business and politics and who are powerful enough to form private armies and attempt domestic coups against their enemies. And then you have a young man, a doctor, no less, who was otherwise known as a fairly meek guy and one who'd definitely never made any big noises about killing a politician before. Well, he's suddenly in the right place at the right time, isn't he? To take the fatal shot. And he's quickly killed after the deed is done before anyone gets the chance to find out his real motivations. Would his fairly affluent father-in-law being inconvenienced by some dirty tricks really have been enough for humble Carlweiss to tool up and ambush a state senator? And then after the politician is dead, we have his botched autopsy discrepancies in the investigation, confusion over whether the assassin actually fired a bullet at all. And there's even a theory that Carl Weiss only slapped Huey Long and that Huey was actually killed by one of his own security guards in the ensuing chaos. The evidence has been examined time and again since, and there's reason to believe that Huey may well have been killed by one of his own guys. Presumably, they tell us, by accident. Where else have we heard that? You know, a security guard, otherwise well-meaning, accidentally discharging the lethal shot that kills the politician. Now take it a step further and actually consider the venomous atmosphere in Louisiana by this point and suppose that someone at Standard made a call or paid off the right cop and suppose that someone in Huey Long's police escort then took the confrontation with Carl Weiss as the moment of opportunity. And the young doctor was just a convenient patsy. But anyway, regardless, FDR was every bit as relieved as the board of Standard Oil when Huey Long was killed. So for all the, the tumult and the festering discontent at home, abroad, it was a different story for American business because Adolf Hitler had come to power in 1933 and the American power elite found that the Nazi government was very good for business. Thomas Watson was the owner of IBM, which was a New Deal company, and he was a good friend to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. 
and he received an interesting message from his company's German subsidiary, uh, Der Helmag, in 1933. The message informed him that the new national socialist government wanted to conduct a census and they'd opened the task of tabulating the results to the private sector. Now, there were already frightening stories traveling across the Atlantic to the States about how Germany's Jewish population was being targeted for violent attacks, banned from working particular jobs, and they were being beaten into comas by brown shirts if they dissented. 10,000 refugees were already fleeing the persecution. Jews had already been rounded up and interned in concentration camps. Thomas Watson directed IBM's German arm to bid for the census contract, and they won it. And thereafter, IBM would go on to play an integral role in the industrial killing machine of the Third Reich. The company controlled the specific type of paper that Hollerith tabulation machines used. They also controlled the production of the punch cards and the spare parts that were necessary to keep the machines functioning. And scholars and historians have since calculated that wherever the Nazis implemented Thomas Watson's IBM data collecting machines, the death rate was noticeably higher than places without them. In Holland, a country where IBM's infrastructure was pretty well embedded and the Nazi bureaucrats were especially efficient, as many as 102,000 Dutch Jews were killed. A Nazi bureaucrat uh, praised IBM's technology at the time, and he said, in compiling statistics this way, the National Socialist Movement now has a roadmap to switch from knowledge to deeds. And for his efforts, Watson was awarded a medal by Adolf Hitler in recognition of his service to the Third Reich. Now, Watson had Jewish friends and he had Jewish business associates in Germany. He'd personally witnessed the aftermath of Kristallnacht when he visited and he knew for a certainty that his company was helping compile figures on how many Jews were inside German territory and that they were being rounded up and interned in concentration camps. He accepted the medal from Adolf Hitler anyway. IBM played an important role in the Holocaust and World War II, but they were far from the only American company to do so. Alan Dulles was in the State Department delegation that attended the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and although the Versailles Treaty outlawed the sale of military equipment to Germany, and strict limits had been set on what kind of trade was to be conducted with the country. Dulles privately reassured his friends in big business, you know, friends like the DuPonts and Standard Oil, that the new laws could be circumvented with a little caution and a little finesse. The DuPonts especially were appalled at the limits imposed by the treaty. Uh, don't forget, they'd made a quarter of a a billion dollars out of supplying all sides with material to fight World War One, And that's, that's $250 million in 1918. So nowadays, that's just over $4 billion in 2021. And these, these are incomprehensible sums of money. So the DuPonts and others like them, 
they're looking at their bank balance after World War One, and then their profit margins and whatnot. And then they're looking at how fragile the peace in Europe is and how it's all but certain that another war is going to break out relatively soon on the continent. And then they're looking at this treaty that tells them that they're not allowed to get rich off of German rearmament. And they're asking, are you fucking kidding me? Now, don't get me wrong, Dulles wasn't the only one finding loopholes and rifling through the small print to make money for himself and his friends. But as is so often the case with him, by following his story during this period, we can get a feel for what was happening in the broader world of secret politics and business in the interwar period. Um, because Germany, especially the years between Hitler taking power and America intervening in World War II, well, Germany was a hot area for American firms to invest in. And by the 1930s, Dulles was a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell where his brother Foster worked. And as we discussed in, I think it was episode 12, the Alan Dulles episode. But as we discussed there, it's here where Dulles's thread connects on the corkboard to so many others because he was also the secretary of the Council on Foreign Relations from 1933 right up to 1944. And he maintained close ties to it for the rest of his life and career. The council received much of its funding from heavy hitters in the world of big business and finance like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers will crop up again as we roll along since Nelson and David Rockefeller were especially close to the Dulles boys. Not only that, but their interest in Standard Oil. Uh, don't forget that their grandfather was a co-founder of Standard, uh, John D. Rockefeller. Well, their interest in Standard Oil required people like Alan and Foster Dulles to help safeguard their investments. And Dulles was nothing if not loyal to the power elite. And whenever his friends at the Council on Foreign Relations faced difficulties with foreign governments, say some new anti-colonial anti leader was trying to nationalize his oil fields or some charismatic com communist leader had read Mao and raised the guerrilla army. Well, if that happened, Dulles was the cold-blooded killer that people like the Rockefellers would turn to for help in dealing with the problem. And it's safe to say then that Sullivan and Cromwell dealt with the elite of the elite uh, managing accounts and representing companies that to one degree or another were all instruments of US imperial power. The Dulles boys were also crucial in setting up the cash flow between US and Nazi businesses and banks in the 1930s. And I'm quoting here from the New York Times review of The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer. Uh, quote, John Foster Dulles had a central role in channeling funds from the United States to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Indeed, his friendship with Dr. Schacht, the Reichsbank president and Hitler's minister of economics, was crucial to the rebuilding of the German economy. Sullivan and Cromwell floated bonds for Krupp AG, the arms manufacturer, and also worked for IG Farben, the chemicals conglomerate that later manufactured Zyklon B, the gas used to murder millions of Jews. IG Farben also did a lot of business with DuPont Chemicals, 
who in turn had subsidiary companies that did business with Sullivan and Cromwell, while Farben also owned shares in Standard Oil, which was going to help supply the Nazis with the oil it needed to rebuild the German army. It was a system of reciprocal investment. It was business that created business. And another outfit directing American investment in 1930s Germany was Brown Brothers Harriman, a financial uh, services firm founded by Averill Harriman and George Herbert Walker, who is one of the Bush grandfathers, who is, uh, of course, George Bush Sr. and George Bush Jr.'s relative. Brown Brothers Harriman formed a very close relationship with the German industrialists of the 20s and the 30s, particularly the Thyssen family. The Thyssens were steel magnets and after losing a fortune in World War I, anticipating that a second world war was not far away, August Thyssen, the family patriarch, uh, he decided to set up an international private banking system to shield the family's wealth. And they would also directly fund Hitler's rise to power because they believed that the Nazis were the best weapon against the creep of socialism. One of these Thyssen banks was founded in 1924 in New York, and it was called the Union Banking Corporation, which is a name so perfectly vague, it can only be bad news, really. Um, Prescott Bush became a director at the bank in 1934, earning a share worth exactly $125. And he played a key role together with Fritz Thyssen, August's son, in transforming UBC into essentially a money laundering machine, not just for the Thyssen family, but Nazi capital as a whole. And Alan Dulles would serve as a legal representative for Thyssen's Rotterdam Bank and IG Farben and consulted on Prescott Bush and UBC's covert business deals with Nazi firms. Uh, his main role was basically to hide the dirt from the US government. Prescott gave the Dulleses ever more responsibility after a 1934 congressional investigation discovered that Another venture controlled by Harriman and Walker, the Hamburg America shipping line, was actually just a front for IG Fabian to conduct espionage and distribute propaganda on behalf of the Nazis. Prescott also earned a piece of the Consolidated Salzian Steel Company, or CSSC, which, again, like IG Fabian, would cut costs by using Nazi slave labor during the Holocaust. Now, the true genius of all this fuckery is that the maze of fake firms and front companies that they buried all this profiteering in would keep investigators and historians baffled for decades. We're almost, well, you know, another decade and we're 100 years on from all this and we still don't know just how extensive the business links between people like Prescott Bush and the Dulleses were with the Nazi government and their industrialists. And we have ballpark estimates, and it's safe to say that they all made a lot of money, but the true extent of it all will likely never be known. So for instance, we know that Knight Woolley, who was a close friend of Prescott Bush and had been a member of the Skull and Bones Society alongside him at Yale, 
Well, he was responsible for bringing in Sullivan and Cromwell in order to safeguard um, Bush's investment in Silesian steel after the Polish government began to make noises about nationalizing the plant. SNC dispatched Foster Dulles, who in turn reached out to a partner of his in Berlin for information on how to shield American investors from any losses that might result from the plant going into state ownership. Eva Schweitzer, who wrote a book called America and the Holocaust, says this, quote, SAC, this is the Salesian American company, which was uh, a venture that was started by Prescott Bush in order to invest in CSSC. Anyway, SAC held coal mines and definitely earned CSSC between 1934 and 1935. But when SAC was vested, there was no trace of CSSC. All concrete evidence of its ownership disappears after 1935, and there are only scattered traces in 1938 and 1939. And then another good example of how well they covered their tracks is to look at one incident that happened when all of this was being investigated in the 1940s. And I'm quoting here from an article by Ben Aris and Duncan Campbell in The Guardian, quote, Erwin May, a Treasury attaché and officer for the Department of Investigation in APC, that's the Alien Property Commission, well, he was assigned to look into UBC's business. The first fact to emerge was that Roland Harriman, Prescott Bush, and the other directors didn't actually own their shares in UBC, but merely held them on behalf of Bank Voor Handel. Strangely, no one seemed to know who owned this Rotterdam-based bank, including UBC's president. In 1933, the Dulles boys attended a summit of some of Germany's most prominent industrialists and Nazi backers. And this was supposed to be a fact-finding mission that they were undertaking in some capacity for the US government. But it wound up just becoming another way to, to network. Alan Dulles even met Hitler in person. Uh, he found him, and this is Alan Dulles's quote here, uh, rather unremarkable. But Dulles was quite taken with Joseph Goebbels, who he described to his friends back in the States as a sincere and frank fellow. Foster Dulles, for his part, was impressed with Hitler. Uh, he described him as a man who raised himself from humble origins to assume leadership of a great nation. Foster Dulles would eventually work out a deal where a US syndicate led by Averil Harriman came to handle almost all the trade from Nazi Germany on behalf of US companies. And he positioned Sullivan and Cromwell directly at the center of the financial networks that were emerging to do business with the, the fascist governments of Germany and Italy, but especially Germany. And the sums of money involved here are incredible. And it's no exaggeration to say that the investment advice and the financial trickery that was dreamed up by the Dulles Boys and Union Banking Corporation channeled a vast amount of money and material directly into the Nazi war chest. So without IBM, the Holocaust would not have been conducted nearly as efficiently. Without Standard Oil, the Nazi Air Force 
would never have developed the capabilities that it did. Because you see, the Luftwaffe airplanes ran on tetraethyl gasoline. And in the 1930s, only Standard Oil, the DuPonts, and their company, General Motors, could produce tetraethyl in the quantities that the Nazis needed to fly their planes. So Hermann Schmitz, who was IG Farben's CEO, reached out to the president of Standard Oil, Walter Teagle, and brokered a deal for the British arm of Standard to supply Farben with all the tetraethyl they could use, and then set up a series of shell companies to cover up the transactions. And naturally, institutions like UBC and law firms like Sullivan and Cromwell took their cut. And this went on until 1941, so in a very real way, British Standard at the direction of US Standard Oil was literally fueling the blitzkrieg against Britain's civilian population. And you might be wondering what the US government, the um, FDR administration, made of all this. Well, I can say for certain that they were keeping an eye on at least 150 different US companies and their owners at this point, but it wasn't yet a massive political or legal liability to be seen doing business with the Nazis. Alan Dulles was 100% on FDR's radar though, and the administration was keeping pretty close tabs on the Dulles boys' activities during this time. In addition to their links to Germany, the brothers also had close ties to high status players in the Swiss banking system. And for the, for the purposes of this section, whenever you hear me say Swiss banks, you can safely assume I mean Nazis. Um, the Dulleses were also key figures in Republican opposition to the Roosevelt administration. And as we mentioned, served as financial consigliers to JP Morgan and DuPont and Standard Oil and so on. Um, and again, they were some of the key players in the aborted coup against FDR. Alan Dulles was also a neighbor and friend of Charles Lindbergh, the, um, the aviator. Lindbergh never publicly stated his support for Adolf Hitler, but his anti-Semitism uh, was well known and his vocal support for neutrality in the building tensions between Germany and the States and the rest of Europe led many people to believe that he harbored some kind of Nazi sympathies. Alan Dulles did actually get his law firm to close the Berlin office in 1935. And the official history is that, has it that it was because he was shocked and appalled at the, the persecution of Germany's Jews. And it's possible he was sincere about this, but remember that the increasing persecution and violence directed at the Jewish people in Germany well, it was already making front page headlines in the New York Times in 1933, which was the same year that uh, Alan met Goebbels and Hitler face to face. Now, call me cynical, but I think the more likely explanation for his, um, his sudden change of heart in 1935 is that with the money flow established between his side and the Nazis, Dulles and his boys were, were confident that the business connections between individuals in the US and Germany would survive whatever conflict between the German and American states was approaching. 
And on top of this, although Dulles was a pure Republican to the bone, his, um, his interventionist stance aligned him with FDR's Democrat administration, which bought him some degree of political cover. Uh, you have to remember, he was a born spy, first and foremost, before everything else. And I hate to drop a cliche on you, but ultimately, a spy's only real loyalty is to himself. Now, former members of FDR's cabinet have said Alan Dulles, in particular, was quite useful as bait, as what they called um, a dangler. I think that's what they call it. Uh, because he couldn't say no to a money-making opportunity. He could never keep his mouth shut after a few cocktails. And he tended to draw Nazi and fascist sympathizing business figures and political operators uh, out into the spotlight. And this might explain why they gave him such a long leash in Europe. Um, they thought it would make him think that nobody was looking too closely at him. And it did help them do a pretty decent job of counter-espionage in some respects. But for all that, FDR's failure to actually do anything final and definitive about all this scheming and deal-making wound up further empowering a kind of shadow government that had started in the 1930s, somewhat shaken by the crash of 29, but by the late 30s had regained its confidence and re-established itself. And a nice illustration of this can be found in this excerpt from a letter that John Foster Dulles sent to Lord McGowan, the um, British chairman of Imperial Chemical Industries. Quote, <clears throat> The word cartel has, in the United States, assumed the stigma of a bogeyman, which the politicians are constantly attacking. The fact of the matter is that most of these politicians are highly insular and nationalistic, and because the political organization of the world has, under such influence, been so backward, business people who have had to cope realistically with international problems have had to find ways for getting through and around stupid political barriers. Now, I quite enjoy the dark comedy of John Foster Dulles, of all people, accusing anybody of irrationality or backwards nationalism. Now, an interesting line of inquiry is to think about the personal politics of a lot of the Americans who were working with the Nazis in the 30s. And what you find quite quickly is that many of them were very far from what we'd think of as radical right-wing fascist fanatics. And in fact, some of them were what we might even describe as uh, moderate Republicans or even liberals. So Watson at IBM, for instance, well, he was a big supporter of the New Deal. And, and as we mentioned, IBM was considered to be a New Deal company. Prescott Bush, for all that his family went on to flirt with, you know, evangelical fascism and the neocons and whatnot. Well, Prescott was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood and supported the American Birth Control League in the 40s. And he was even very cautiously, kind of, in a roundabout way, supportive of civil rights for black Americans, or at least a, a controlled form of it. He was a financial contributor to a college fund that had been set up for black Americans. Dulles himself, 
if we believe his own version of events, wanted America to become a refuge for Jewish people fleeing the Nazis. And as we discussed in our episode about him a while back, he was he was perfectly open to bringing in liberals and anti-Soviet leftists into the CIA if it made strategic sense. So what is the connecting thread here when, when we break it right down? Why did cowboy oil men and Ivy League liberals find it so easy to do business with the architects of the Holocaust? And in a word, it's anti-communism. And I'll return to this again and again as we go along in this series, because if we don't understand the intensity of the anti-communist sentiment that emanated from these guys, then nothing we'll discuss in episodes to come will make any sense. The dullest boys had established long-standing ties with the Nazis precisely because these would prove useful in the cause of anti-communism, whether America won or lost any possible war with Germany. And people like Prescott Bush, you know, they happily support Planned Parenthood and other causes, but if you threaten their business investments, if you push for wealth redistribution, suddenly you are dealing with a stone-cold murderer. And I'll read you this quote again, which I used it in the Gladio episode because I need you to um, keep this rabid anti-communism in mind as we go forward. Now, it's talking about England's conservatives, but but it applies just as much to the Dulles and Bush style of uh, moderate Republicans and, and even liberals. So from the historian Denner Frank Fleming, quote, the Russian revolution's abolition of the church and landed nobility might have been tolerated and even accepted by the world's conservatives in time, but the nationalization of industry, business, and land never the minds of England's conservatives snapped shut during the Russian Revolution and never opened again. The Russian Revolution happened 12 years before the Wall Street crash and the memory of that was vivid in these people's minds as the Depression led to a widespread rise in union activism and socialist organising. The liberal capitalism embodied by people like Prescott Bush Alan Dulles, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefellers. It can accommodate fascism. It can accommodate Nazism. It cannot accommodate a program of wealth redistribution of communism. And so we come back to why stronger action wasn't taken against all this secret deal-making between the American business elite and the Nazis. And one answer could be that for all his talk about being a traitor to his class, FDR was still strongly connected to it and um, realistic about what he could actually do to um, combat it. One of FDR's friends and advisors was a guy called Colonel Edward House, who is another deep-lying political figure with strong links to the Money Trust and Wall Street and in 1933, FDR privately admitted to Colonel House, um, you know as well as I do, that a financial element has earned this government since the days of Andrew Jackson. Now, it was said in a turn of resignation about what his administration was up against. And although FDR 
did manage to bruise this um, financial element, he could never fully bring it to heel. And by the 1950s, it had assumed an immense amount of influence. And just before you get worried about where I'm going with this idea of a financial element, what I'm describing is basically the networks of um, oil cartels, military industrial corporations, banks, law firms, Wall Street, and then people with feet in both the public and private sectors like the Dulleses. <clears throat> And their habit of subverting or ignoring the policies and laws of the legitimate state, both domestically and when it came to foreign policy, and forming these clandestine and unsanctioned alliances with like-minded actors while feuding with and even struggling against other factions that they were officially supposed to be on the same page as, all without democratic scrutiny or accountability, is a hallmark of deep and parapolitical activity. Now, I like this quote by the historian Ryan Gingaras. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and here he's speaking to J. Star Daily. Now, the full article is about the Turkish deep state, but this section applies just as well in an American context. And it gets uh, what we've been at trying to articulate ever since we began our Americas, actually ever since we began the podcast. Quote, the deep state is not an entirely monolithic entity that shadows the bureaucracy, military or civil society. Rather, it is an eclectic, ever-evolving political theatre of competition, one that includes elements both explicitly legal and outlaw in nature. And without real scrutiny or oversight and without opposition, these powerful yet submerged forces inevitably begin evading and even shaping the legal and political structures and institutions of the public-facing state uh, as a product of this theatre of competition. And this is exactly what Dulles and company would do with increasing boldness as the decades rolled on, which, of course has had massive consequences, not just for the US, but the whole world. So to round out this section, I think we should pick up Joe Kennedy's thread again, since he only, he only really got a cameo last episode, did Joe? So it's probably worth talking about him for a little bit now. And basically Joe practically whistled past the Wall Street crash. Uh, he'd gone out west and he made a fortune in the movies. He was called the first and the last outsider ever to fleece Hollywood. And goes without saying that he left a trail of broken careers and lives in his wake. Uh, he carried on a pretty sleazy affair with the movie star Gloria Swanson. <clears throat> and he robbed her blind in the process. And by the time they broke up, she was over a million dollars in debt. And at the start of the Great Depression, Joe was worth about $500 million in today's money. By the mid-30s, that had ballooned to $3 billion. FDR appointed him to the Securities and Exchange Commission on the logic that, as, as FDR put it, takes a thief to catch a thief. And with the end of Prohibition, Joe's canny investments in a string of shuttered distilleries were primed to make him even more money. And in 1933, he took his wife, Rosa, 
his mistress, Kay Halley, and FDR's 25-year-old son, James Roosevelt, on a transatlantic cruise to schmooze with no less a luminary than Winston Churchill and make him an offer. Now, the popular story has it that the two only really got to know one another at the tail end of the 30s, but it's since been discovered that after this business trip in 33, Churchill wound up investing tens of thousands in Joe's liquor businesses and another couple of thousand in the private New York City subway line that Kennedy was also an investor in called Brooklyn Manhattan Transit. And for his part, James Roosevelt made a bundle out of providing insurance to the import and export side of Kennedy and Churchill's liquor ventures. By 1938, Kennedy was ambassador to Britain and he reveled in being accepted by the British Anglo aristocracy, but tensions were developing between him and Churchill due to Kennedy's attitude towards the Nazi government and appeasement. Now, before we go on here, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm some sort of Churchill fanboy. I mean, the man was an animal. He was a genocidal maniac. Let's be let's be real about it. But part of being a genocidal maniac, especially if you're British, is feeling personally aggrieved when another genocidal maniac rises to power practically on your doorstep, especially if that genocidal maniac is German. So Churchill was in no mood to hear talk of appeasement or negotiation with the Nazis by the time that Joe Kennedy was establishing himself as a court favourite here in Blighty. Now, Joe had, he'd always felt like something of an outsider in the US, never quite part of the WASP elite there, but in Britain, he felt accepted. And he even married his daughter, Kathleen, to William Cavendish, who was the son of the Duke of Devonshire. And he felt comfortable enough there that he became quite openly or I should really say even more openly anti-Semitic. Uh, Joe would tell anybody who'd listen that the Jewish pundits in the US were trying to take a match to the fuse of the world. Uh, he told his friend Charles Lindbergh that the only way to avert the coming war was to stop provoking the Germans with negative Jewish-influenced media coverage. And he privately assured the German ambassador to Britain Herbert von Dirksen, that FDR had fallen under the sway of this same Jewish influence, which was why he was making such a fuss about these Nazis. But Joe was confident that he could talk his president around. And von Dirksen personally informed Hitler that Germany had no better friend in London than Joe Kennedy. And Joe also told a British journalist in 1939 that the Democrat Party policy is a Jewish production. So Joe was becoming a problem, folks. It's, it's safe to say that. And his lack of finesse or diplomatic ability was beginning to cause a strain between the Americans and the Brits. And in truth, his politics had always been closer to fascism than whatever social democratic impulse was at play in the FDR admin. So when war between Britain and Germany finally broke out in 1939, Kennedy was hopelessly out of step with the prevailing sentiment in governments either side of the Atlantic. And one of his more famous quotes from this period is, 
democracy is finished in Britain and it may be here in America too. And eventually Roosevelt recalled him from his ambassadorship. Uh, he was wary, not just of everything that we've discussed, but also Kennedy's aggressive ambition and his past friendship with FDR's political enemies like Father Coughlin, who in turn had been an ally of Huey Long and Joe's disturbing tendency to reach out to elements of the Nazi government in secret. So Joe's presidential hopes were pretty much finished by the outbreak of World War II, but he bound up much of his ambition in his children. Uh, he, was, he was a clinical psychopath through and through, and his kids seem to have been the only things in the world that he allowed himself to feel any actual affection for, probably because they were like extensions of him. So he retreated to his Florida estate and he was embittered and resentful, but he was also convinced that he laid the foundations for the Kennedys to become a great American dynasty. And he was determined that his boys would carry the torch forward. Sadly, we can't really get into the Depression era American bank robbers too much because for one, the details aren't strictly relevant to our story, but also I'd probably never stop talking about it if we did. Um, but I do urge you to go forth and read about the period because it absolutely rules. It does bear some discussion here, though, because the golden age of bank robbery is where J. Edgar Hoover made his bones, so to speak, as a major public figure and cemented the feds as an American institution. A big part of the reason why Hoover was so personally offended by the activities of gangsters like Dillinger or Pretty Boy Floyd was because the public response to the sensationalized media coverage of their crime spree was one of sympathy and support and not disgust and outrage as he would have liked. It's difficult to overstate the level of contempt and hatred that the public held the banking sector in during the depression. You have stories of say John Dillinger emptying a bank vault and tossing bundles of cash to customers on his way out the door. It made him look like a folk era to huge numbers of Americans. If you're on the welfare line every day, if your house has been repossessed by the bank because through absolutely no fault of your own, the economy has tanked and you're out of a job, why wouldn't you be enthralled with the idea of these badass dudes armed with Thompsons fucking over the people who caused your misery. So naturally, uh, Hoover decided that this was more than just gangsterism. This was subversion and their activities threatened the social order. And to him, every bank job they got away with tipped America closer to social revolution. 
And because the robbery crews operated across state lines, that made it a federal issue. And he was given permission to deploy the Bureau of Investigation to kill or capture them. Now, you know, there were a few setbacks here and there. Uh, the shootout at Little Bohemia Lodge in Wisconsin was one. Uh, this was where Hoover's G-men got word that the Dillinger gang was hiding out at the lodge and prepared an ambush. But because they'd been told that the gang was about to leave, they rushed their preparation and they didn't even bother to alert the local cops about what they had in mind. So Melvin Purvis, who was on point for this one, he was generally regarded as a fairly level-headed guy who was cool in high-pressure situations. But that was nowhere in evidence here. Uh, when a car full of completely innocent businessmen failed to stop quickly enough for the feds, they sprayed it with gunfire and killed one of the passengers and seriously wounded the other two, which also tipped off Dillinger's crew that there were some feds outside waiting for them. Uh, a firefight began and the gang escaped, leaving two dead, one of which was a fed um, called Carter Bohm, and they left four injured as well. And in addition to killing Bohm, babyface Nelson had also made off with a Bureau car, a Hoover was facing calls for his um, resignation. And the humiliation of the Little Bohemia shootout alone drove him into high froth. Um, because after all, he personally demanded that the FBI be let off the leash to go after these robbery crews. And at every step, he'd fed his pet journalists exaggerated tales of his and his men's crime-fighting abilities and bravery. And this was supposed to have been an epic story of law and order triumphing over subversion and anarchy. You know, the, the final proof that Hoover's FBI deserved more domestic intelligence gathering powers and uh, less scrutiny and oversight. And instead, Dillinger had repeatedly escaped from custody. He'd led raids not just on banks, but on police armories. And his gang had now killed a G-man and stolen a bureau car. Eventually, the feds managed to hunt down and either kill or capture most of the big name characters who'd been knocking over banks during the Depression. But Hoover would forevermore nurse feelings of resentment and insecurity over the period because he knew as well as anyone that far from relying on his personal charisma and the scientific law enforcement techniques that he'd boasted about at the country club, the hunt for the Dillinger gang had mostly relied on old-fashioned snitch work and brute force and dumb luck. Uh, he neatly buried stories of the way that his agents had abused and tortured the girlfriends and wives of the Dillinger gang during interrogations, and he used the war on crime to enhance his own personal legend. The propaganda value of Dillinger's killing outside the uh, theatre um, in Chicago, well, that boosted the FBI's profile immeasurably in the eyes of the public. Um, you can even track this change in public attitude, uh, the success of Hoover and the US government's propaganda campaign. Um, you just have to look at movies from the time. Whereas at the tail end of Prohibition, you had flicks like Little Caesar and Scarface that invited the audience to put themselves in the shoes of mobsters and bootleggers. Now you had James Cagney playing FBI agents and the figure of the G-man was lauded in Hollywood.
Hoover was, he was clearly feeling perky as he rode the wave of this fawning publicity, um, at least perky enough to begin making ever wilder statements on the record. Um, he gave a speech at the International Association of Police Chiefs in 1935, where he called advocates of the prison parole system enemies of society. Uh, he testified to the House Appropriation Committee in 1939 that the FBI's General Intelligence Division had been collecting information and opening files on hundreds of trade unionists in an effort to clamp down on subversive activity. Uh, Pharrell Dobbs, the um, Trotskyist Teamsters Union leader, wrote an essay in the Fourth International exploring the FBI's anti-union activity in the years leading up to the Second World War. Uh, this essay was written in, I think, 1940. Uh, incidentally, Dobbs was also a mentor to a young Jimmy Hoffa, who we'll be talking about later in this series. Anyway, Dobbs wrote this, quote, Workers have little fear of the city police and little or no confidence in the local cop as being in any way their friend. It is different with the FBI. There is much confusion in the minds of the workers on this point. Roosevelt understands this and is taking full advantage of the fact a feeling of awe towards all federal authority is drilled into the minds of the workers during their school days and then carefully nurtured by clever propaganda throughout their adult lives. This is the primary advantage of the FBI as an instrument for the campaign against the unions. There has been a careful special build-up to augment the standing of the FBI in the eyes of the workers. The highly dramatized campaign against Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly, etc. provided the stage for this build-up. A series of movie plays glorifying G-Men has reinforced the drive. Newsreels of the G-Men in training, accompanied by the inevitable sadist speech by J. Edgar Hoover, have been a powerful supplement. The radio has contributed through the gangbuster serial and through other devices. These factors have been a big help to Roosevelt in his anti-union drive. Elsewhere, Dobbs says, quote, Today, under the great liberal Roosevelt, who is the real head of the FBI, the Department of Justice and its antitrust division, the old practices are revived. Workers are already in prison as a result. Others are under heavy bond pending appeal of convictions to higher courts. Still others are now on trial or awaiting trial. A considerable number are under probation to federal officers with jail sentences hanging over their heads. But... Why was Roosevelt directing Hoover's anti-union drive? Well, the most obvious reason is the looming war. Uh, it was pretty obvious that America was going to get involved at some point, And the last thing Roosevelt wanted were unions going on strike or holding up production of arms and equipment. The other goes back to what we were saying before. FDR's program was about stabilizing capitalism. If that meant the workers benefited to some degree, then great, but he had no interest in turning the US into a workers' utopia. So you can kind of smuggle in some anti-union activity under the guise of the war effort, you know. What Hoover still had no stomach for was going after the mafia or organized crime in general, even though it was in the papers practically every day. And it's possible he knew the FBI didn't have the capability to tackle organized crime with much success or that putting together a map of the underworld and untangling the complicated money laundering schemes um, 
was beyond the FBI in the 1930s. His attitude uh, baffled his staff. Neil Welch, who was an FBI agent who would go on to investigate organized crime for the FBI, said, quote, Hoover's attitude was so contrary to reality as to be a reason for great speculation. Now, I have read two possible reasons for Hoover's attitude, which we can get a glimpse of in his anxious, panicky memos that he sent in response to the news that his men had begun to investigate Louis Rosenstiel's criminal connections in 1939. The first reason is that Frank Costello, who was one of Lucky Luciano's key guys, while Costello was said to supply Hoover with betting tips on fixed fights and horse races, Hoover liked to flutter, and he was known to send agents to place $100 bets as part of their other duties. The other reason is quite darker, and it goes that Rosenstiel was the legit businessman who was connected to Mayalansky and Lucky Luciano's bootlegging activities back in Prohibition. And you'll remember that we talked about how this connection went beyond business. He became very close personal friends with Maya Lansky. Lansky referred to Rosenstiel as Supreme Commander, and they threw dinner parties to celebrate each other's birthdays every year and all the rest of it. Rosenstiel had hit on a way to operate without the authorities interfering in his businesses, which Lansky would refine in the years to come, and it was sexual blackmail. Rosenstiel would basically host orgies where prostitutes of all ages, and I do mean all ages, would be pandered to Rosenstiel's friends in high society. And there's evidence to suggest that Lansky established a West Coast arm of this operation at least as early as 1939. And for a fee, politicians and judges and diplomats and army staff and cops could take part in these orgies where drugs and booze flowed freely. And at some point, they'd be photographed and filmed on the sly. And they wouldn't realize that they'd been compromised until they tried to do something in the course of their normal day-to-day -day jobs that conflicted in some way with Lansky or Rosenstiel's businesses. So, you know, launching a probe, launching an investigation, refusing to sign this contract or that contract, something like that. And at that point, the photographs and films would be produced. Now, Hoover was said to be a frequent attendee at these parties, and Lansky was known to brag about how he'd fixed that son of a bitch, Hoover, to friends and business associates. Rosenstiel told his wife that they had pictures of Hoover that they'd released to the press if he ever tried to go after him or his friends in the mob. Wild Bill Donovan the diplomat spook and OSS man, as well as James Angleton, the poet spook. Well, they were said to have either supplied Lansky with the pictures or have received the pictures from Lansky at some point in the 1940s. The pictures were alleged to show Hoover in drag blowing his drunken assistant, Clyde Tolson, at one of Rosenstiel's parties. Hoover was well aware of the rumors about him in the 1930s. Uh, gossip rags and dirt sheets openly talked about his very close relationship with his assistant. The release of these photos as someone who had uh, puffed himself up as the last sexually pure being in America, well, that would have just destroyed his career and tarnished the FBI. 
Lansky, for his part, was now coming into his own as the mob's accountant in the 1930s. Uh, he and Luciana were establishing a kind of new underworld order after the repeal of Prohibition, and they turned Murder Incorporated loose to enforce this new regime. Luciano's arrest for pimping in 1935 was a setback, but by the outbreak of World War II, all the pieces were in place for the mob to become an adjunct to the US intelligence and national security state. Lansky, always looking for new ventures and opportunities, turned his eyes to Nevada and then to the little island of Cuba, 103 miles off the coast of Florida. part three of our American tabloid series, we're going to look at how Lansky, on behalf of the mafia, staked out a territorial claim in Cuba. Cuba is going to become a massive part of the story as we go along and spending some time next episode kind of exploring how the mob and US corporations worked on behalf of the US imperial machine in Latin America is crucial if we're going to understand the period more broadly. As ever, thanks for listening. And remember, you can drop us a rating and a review on iTunes as well as subbing and showing some love over on Patreon. But until then, urge on friends and loved ones, check the phones and memorize the exits and don't get captured. Cheers, guys. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love. Roly-poly, roly-poly, roly-poly.